Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Happy Holidays from Trupanion, a proud sponsor of Pure Dog Talk. You treat your pets like family, so why not insure them like it? Protect against the unexpected with Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. What sets Trupanion apart from the pack is their ability to pay your veterinarian directly, leaving you to pay less out of pocket when unexpected vet bills arise. If you're a breeder, Trupanion also offers a program allowing you to send your litters home with a special offer to try medical insurance for pets. Last year, Trupanion paid out over $4.5 million in claims as part of the program. From seasonal allergies to chocolate ingestion, they've covered it. Learn more about the Breeder Support Program through the partner link on my page and let them know that Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am so excited, you guys. I have with us Dr. Gerald Bell. He is the adjunct professor of veterinary genetics at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. And today we have part two of our episode. So I am very excited to have him back today. You made a comment that I thought was really, really interesting. When we are looking at those breeding decisions, and this has been said many, many times, sort of as a truism of purebred dogs, you breed to the dog, don't worry about whether you get along with the person. Like it's more important to go find the genes that you need for whatever it is that you're focused on. And I think that what you're talking about in that last segment is a big piece of that, is really pay attention to what you're looking for and what you need. And that's more important than any other consideration. When you are talking about making decisions on the genetics of what is in your line and possibly adding a new foundation bitch or a new brood bitch, talk to us a little bit about ways Bill Shelton has mentioned this concept. And I think it's a really interesting one. And I'd like to maybe have you expand on it a little bit having two different bitch lines and being able to kind of breed back and forth between them as a way to keep that homozygosity of type and style while still having some heterozygosity of different genetics that you're able to pull in that way. I think that's certainly a good way to do things. It also depends on what you're breeding for. You know, some people might, for some breeds that have a working as well as confirmation mm -hmm. and where those lines have not completely separated because we have many breeds where your working lines and your confirmation lines have not even crossed each other for decades, right. that they're almost completely different breeds. But for some people that have different aspects that they're selecting for, that is a good possibility as well. And certainly you need to have a kennel if you're going right. to have that large a, a right. gene pool, you know, a breeding program where you want to have multiple brood bitches and so forth. And I think that it's certainly helpful as well. 
But the bottom line is you're going to be crossing between them. You're, you're going to be crossing, whether it's in the first generation or the second generation, you're going to be mixing things up anyway. So all you're dealing with is the fact that you've got some more diversity in your home rather than in your breed as to where you're going to and where you're coming from. So I think that that is a good thing. But again, each mating must be looked at separate and distinct from anything else that you're doing in your breed to be able to fully evaluate what you're looking for. And you mentioned about the personal side about, you know, you don't have to be friends with the person that you want to breed to their dog. I want to also address the personal side of owning a popular sire. Because it does become a personal issue as well. It's a very ego-boosting thing to have a popular sire, to have a top-winning stud dog, to have a national champion. And everybody wants to come and breed to it. I'll use an example of my dogs. So my dog Jones, who has passed away several years ago, he was our stud dog for quite a while. His first litter... We went to a national, and his first litter were puppies. And there were two daughters at the national, and one took best in sweeps, and the opposite took best puppy, because it was a national. We had best puppy as well. And a lot of people came up to us and said, wow, they are really beautiful. I'd like to breed to your Jones. And at that point, his first litter was six months old. And we had done a second breeding, and they weren't even born yet. And that was the extent of his breeding at that time. So you certainly couldn't call him a popular sire, but we really wanted to see how these guys developed before we started breeding to him more. And so what we actually did was we told people that he was with the field trainer working on his hunting titles and that he wasn't available for stud right now. And that allowed us to put off for a year even the conversations because to turn people down and say, I'm not going to breed to your bitch is also something that involves personal emotions. And we need to really think about those things. So it is up to the stud dog owners to think about how their dogs are being utilized, what you have been able to evaluate from what they have produced so far, and at what point you slow it down so that you have better evaluation and at what point you say, well, you know, I would really like to breed to that bitch line or whatever and see right. what we have from there. So it really is something that the stud dog owners also have to make some concerted efforts about not causing a popular sire syndrome. And that dog still might be very influential in the breed over time. And you certainly should store semen on those dogs as well, right. because they can still be utilized long after their active breeding life has gone by if they have that quality and if what they have produced is of quality and we have little detrimental aspects, if you see closer breedings or line breedings on those individuals, then you have a better feel for what can be produced and whether you need more contribution that can help the breed in that way. I cannot stress that particular piece about collecting a stud dog and saving them. Enough. I had a dog many years ago who was not used extensively. I think he had three litters, but they were very successful and the dogs did very well. And by the time he got to be nine or 10 years old and those dogs were winning all over the place, everybody wanted to breed to him. And I'm like, yeah, I got nothing. (laughs) It's just, I think it is so important. And I learned my lesson. So. That would definitely also be a is, a, is a big hedge against loss of genetic diversity. So if yeah. we have semen on dogs from 
10, 20 years ago, and you say, well, the breed was much healthier and hardier back then, well, then use that semen if the test results and everything else and the health and the quality is there. If you've got a straw or a, what are the little balls of different right. places store right. semen differently? Right. You got your little ball of semen or you got your little straw of semen. And you have some that has poor quality and some that is much better quality. Use a straw of poor quality semen to send into a genetic testing lab and have a dog tested for all the tests that were not available when that dog was alive. And so that you know what the background of that is and you know the value of that semen in terms of controlling breed related genetic disease because you'll have those test results. That's a really good idea. I wanted to follow up one last thing before I let you go. I know I'm using up all your time, but I was really struck when you were talking about the OFA health surveys. And again, I'm past president of my national club. We've done two different health surveys for our different iterations of the CHIC program, Canine Health Information Center for the listeners. And I'm curious if you have any insight as to we had our baseline chick program found that one of the tests that we'd incorporated really nobody tested positive for it. So we did another health survey transition to a different test that we included. How frequently do you recommend that breed clubs reevaluate or assess their chick programs as regards the current standing of the health of the breed? So would we like to put an arbitrary number on that and say, you know, once every five years, you should reevaluate your chick requirements? I think the bottom line is it depends on what is happening in your breed. If there is a new genetic test and it is a high frequency genetic test, and especially if it's a completely penetrant test so that the test results absolutely tell you about disease liability, then maybe you need to include that quickly into your chick requirements. If there are requirements that are no longer applicable to your breed or that are no longer a major issue for your breed, and maybe there's still small pockets and families that need that test, but the whole breed doesn't need that test anymore, then maybe instead of having it as a chick requirement, move it down to a chick recommendation. Because the chick requirements for each breed has required tests and it Mm -hmm. has recommended tests. And those recommended tests are important because it tells the breed about things that are occurring in the breed, but not at a frequency that requires everyone to test for it. Mm -hmm. But it allows them to understand that that is an issue in the breed. And if you run into issues with it, that that is something that is recommended. It also is helpful to veterinarians because when a veterinarian looks up chick requirements and sees things in there that they're not used to seeing, it educates them to say, I need to watch out for that in my patient because that is on the check requirements or recommendations for a breed. So it's very helpful in that way. Hmm. I hadn't thought about it from the vet's perspective. I think that's really interesting. Von Willebrand's disease was a test that was on our German wire hair pointers, original check as a requirement and is now on as a recommendation. And and especially important for your type of Von Willebrand's disease, Mm -hmm. which is type 2, which is very severe bleeding, Mm -hmm. whereas most breeds that have von Willebrand's disease have type 1, which is a very mild bleeding disorder. But the few breeds that have type 2 and type 3 mutations in their breeds, those cause very severe bleeding, where a dog can sneeze and cause a nosebleed, and that nosebleed never stops. I mean, it's that severe that they have clotting issues. So in your breed for that disease, it's very important, but the frequency of that mutation is so low that it shouldn't be a requirement for everyone at this point. Yes. And honestly, what we see it is 
for the most part, from the European imports. That's where it would pop up every now and then. And so that's, I think, how it got in the original file, if you will, for chick. I do want to talk a little bit more about one more thing, because you mentioned about inbreeding coefficients and how everyone's being told they got to watch the inbreeding coefficients of the breeds and that breeds are being ranked based on inbreeding coefficients. And so we need to understand that different breeds have higher average inbreeding coefficients for the breed and some have lower. And then that has nothing to do with the actual health of the breed. It has nothing to do with the viability of the breed. It has to do with accumulated homozygosity, which is a goal of purebred breeding to have homozygosity of quality and health and to diminish the frequency of deleterious recessive genes. So when I look at a breed and I will break down a breed depending on the age of the breed into five-year or 10-year segments and show that as the breed expands its population and develops, that just naturally that inbreeding coefficient goes down from one generation to the next. And that is something that I utilize because the inbreeding coefficient is a tool that we utilize to look at how the breed is breeding. If an inbreeding coefficient the average coefficient for a breed goes down from one generation to the next, it tells me that the breed is utilizing the breadth of their gene pool. If the breed is concentrating on a popular sire or a popular sire line, then everyone is going to be related to that sire or sire line, and therefore their matings are going to have higher homozygosity because of it over time. So if I see an increasing homozygosity over the generations, that tells me that they are truncating on a sire line. So it is a very valuable tool to use in a population sense. What's going on now, though, the thing is that number changes by itself. It's a natural change that talks about the average mating in this generation between two individuals compared to the average mating between two individuals in the prior generation. What's happening now is that we're being told to utilize the tool of the inbreeding coefficient as the goal of mating. And so we're artificially manipulating the inbreeding coefficients. So we can no longer look at it and say, this is an honest assessment of how the breed is utilizing their gene pool. All we can say is it's an honest assessment of how people are manipulating their inbreeding coefficients when an inbreeding coefficient has nothing to do with health or quality. And this is why it's wrong to breed based on an inbreeding coefficient. You need to breed based on What issues do you have? What issues do you not have? And what do you want? And so if some people feel that some breeds are having diminishing litter sizes, or if they do a breed and you get small litters, and there's a lot of environmental components to litter size, so it isn't just genetic. But if we feel that there's a genetic issue going on, then we need to select specifically against that issue of small litter size and breed individuals that have larger litters. But it's not necessarily an inbreeding coefficient thing. It is about deleterious genes that are accumulating in the background. You know, some people can line breed and have wonderful things. And some people, if they even attempt a mild line breeding, they're seeing lots of disease. And so if they have a high amount of liability genes in their breeding dogs, then they need to decide who is most important to me that I want to pass things on. Who is less important that maybe shouldn't be breeding because they're producing a lot of disease? And then outbreed to individuals that aren't having those issues and bring in new genes. 
that's the way you utilize outbreeding to bring new things in because you're seeing an issue. But it's not just a breed by number situation. It's very specific for what you're looking for or what you're selecting against. That is absolutely fabulous. I really think that that has been lost in translation for a lot of folks as they're trying to do the right thing, but not understanding the full, as you say, breadth of what they're trying to accomplish. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. So, hey, crew. As 2020, otherwise known as the year from hell, draws to a close, I have some actual good news to share with y'all. First of all, if you haven't twigged to the Good Dog Pod, you should most definitely add it to your downloads. This is a new podcast I'm hosting for Good Dog with the goal of reaching an even wider audience than we do here at Pure Dog Talk, with great content supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. You can find the Good Dog Pod wherever you get this podcast including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Our primary topics on the Good Dog Pod are training and veterinary and breeding and legal advocacy. And I am so excited because we're going to try out a new format. We're sort of taste testing it. Basically, a call-in show concept with an Ask Our Advisors Q&A session with myself and Dr. Gail Watkins and Susan Patterson from the Facebook Repro Group. Our first crack at this, we're talking about that very first week of neonatal care and fielding questions from the audience, i.e. you guys. So very cool. Second of all, stay tuned for more good news in the new year. This is in advertising speak, what we call the big tease. <laughs> but seriously, though, enjoy this month's outstanding Pure Dog Talk and Good Dog Pod episodes. Go like the Pure Dog Talk Facebook page so that you can get up-to-the-minute details. And consider joining our patrons community by supporting great content at Pure Dog Talk. Most of all, stay safe. Stay healthy and stay strong. Happy holidays to one and all. Can you expand a little bit on when we're talking about the line breeding, inbreeding, outcrossing, all of those things, the COI and the breed by numbers? I'm absolutely keeping that phrase. Can we expand a little bit more on that and specifically touch on? people understanding the value, if you will, of the outcross and then back in and then outcross and then back in and understanding why that works. Like I refer to it as washing the genes when I do an outcross. I know that's wrong, but that's how I think of it in my head. Can we just expand on that concept a little bit more that you're bringing in new things and diluting the gene pool, if you will, but that doesn't mean those things are gone. So outbreeding in order to bring things in that your line doesn't have is the proper way of doing outbreeding. You know, you need something that you're not getting. 
You're not getting that level top line consistently. You're not getting that reach. You're not getting that quality of hair or whatever other things you're selecting for or hunting ability or herding ability or whatever else. Then you want to go to lines that have that, that you don't have. And maybe there are individuals in your own lines so that you're not doing that much of an outbreeding that have the specific things that you are looking for. So those are the reasons to outbreed. But again, it's for specific things. You need to make a list of what you want, what you have, what you don't have, what you don't want in terms of diseases or deleterious traits or faults, confirmational faults. And then you need to prioritize those things. And actually, in prioritizing those things, you also need to understand that certain traits, certain diseases, if you have a genetic test, Now, certain things you can change in one generation. And so if you don't get it in this mating, maybe you get it in the next mating. Okay, Mm. so so you maybe still stay as carriers, but you're not producing effectives. You're not producing what you don't want, but it's not the most important thing for this particular mating. But other things, confirmationally wise, as well as health wise and hips and so forth, can take multiple generations of selection to get what you want. You know, they're complexly inherited. There are multiple genes involved. So for those types of things, you really need to prioritize over many generations if this is what I want. If you don't get it in one generation, or if you do get it in one generation, you can easily lose it in the next generation right. because you haven't fixed all those genes in your breeding stock. So those are reasons to line breed back to individuals. And we're not talking inbreeding, you know, mm-hmm. to a full brother, sister, or father, daughter, or those types of things. We're still talking, you know, maybe a grandparent, maybe a first cousin, second cousin, even as a method of close line breeding. But you want to breed to someone that has all of the characteristics that you already do have, but you're not producing uniformly, and you want to produce them more uniformly. That's a reason for a line breeding to work in that way. And again, the bottom line is it really depends on what's out there what's available to you, because the bottom line is, you know, I find it's easier to select the dogs that you like, that you see these dogs and you see what they're producing and you see what their phenotype is, how they perform or how they, or their confirmation and so forth. And you say, you know, that dog catches my eye. That's probably the first thing you do is put together a list of dogs that you like, and then you look at their pedigrees. Then you look at their health testing. Then you look at what they have, what they don't have, how they match up with what you do have and what you're looking to breed. And that's how you make those decisions in terms of what's important with this mating and what would be great if we had it in this mating, but is not necessarily the most important thing if I have to wait till the next mating in order to do that. One of my interviews with Sue Hubner, cord maker, Pooley in Australia. One of the things that she said to me stuck with me so strongly, and that is that when you do a breeding, you do it for a reason, like what you're talking about, but then you have to keep the puppy that you did the breeding for. (laughs) So the selection in what you move forward in your breeding program, if you do a breeding program, do a breeding because you want to get better hair and you keep the one with the worst hair. Yeah, but I'll also say... That if someone is saying, I want to line breed on a certain individual, okay, Mm -hmm. and and so they do this line breeding, and there's a variation within the litter, and they don't pick the individual that looks the most, looks, acts, 
and performs the most like the individual that they line bred on, mm -hmm. then they're probably not going to get what they thought they were going to get if that's how they're selecting. So if the purpose is to line bread and concentrate the genes of a certain individual, you need to know what that individual looked like and all of their characteristics in order to actually select an individual that has genes most in common and similar with the individual you're line breeding on. Okay, so last question. I had an interview with, I think it was Dr. Karen overall, we talked about the genetics of temperament. And temperament in today's society, you know, we're all got pandemic puppies and everybody and their brother's uncle wants a dog because they're work from home now and whatever. I think temperament just continues to become more and more and more important. And how can we think about the genetic component of temperament and behavior? I think we need to recognize that behavior is one of the most variable things in dogs that we see that we have been able to select for so that we have all sorts of different breeds doing different behaviors that that is innate to them. I mean, you know, I have Gordon Setters and you put a puppy down on a quail wing on a fishing pole mm -hmm. and they freeze. I mean, this is inherited over the generations. There's epigenetic aspects of it. There's a lot of things we don't understand about behavior. But the one thing we need to understand is that behavior is absolutely genetic. Certain individuals certainly can go through traumatic things. And so environment and raising, you know, how they're raised and so forth also has to do with the behavior of an individual dog, but the inherited qualities of it cannot be ignored or minimized. And so therefore, the issues that we're dealing with now with aberrant behaviors, with separation anxieties, with right. all sorts of anxieties that we deal with, these are also inherited and that we need to understand that if you don't want that, then you don't want to breed it. That it's not something that you can say, well, if we just ignore it and we just really socialize them well early, that that will mitigate it. That will not mitigate it if it's inherited behavior. And so these are things we need to understand. Many breeds, because they ran into issues with behavior, and I don't like to single out breeds, but in a good example, the German Shepherd Dog Club of America requires a temperament test as part of their chick requirements. And we know that for quite some time, the behavior of some German shepherds deteriorated to the point where it was not what we wanted for a breed. And so they want stable dogs. For some breeds that were created as guard dogs and even fighting dogs mm -hmm. that are now being utilized as people's pets, we need to understand the genetic potential for that and that we need an even temperament. And for some breeds that are supposed to have a bold temperament, we want to breed for a bold temperament, but we don't want to breed for an aggressive temperament, yes. an overly aggressive temperament. So these are the fine lines that we need to separate out. We have not identified, there are lots of researchers out there looking to identify these genes, Karen overall being one of them. So those have not been identified yet, but we know they're there. And we know that those are absolutely inherited issues. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was exactly what I wanted to talk about. And I appreciate your time so very much. You are just a wealth of knowledge and I could sit here and talk to you all day long. So thank you. Okay. Well, I appreciate passing it on if I could help people out and try to point people in the right directions as to what they can do.
Because the bottom line, you know, if we want to summarize everything that we spoke about here, is that there is no simple, easy way out of breeding dogs. What's the one thing I can do that just makes everything good? There, right. there isn't. This is a job. Okay. And yep. we need to pay attention to what we're doing. We need to pay attention to what we're producing. You know, one thing I say to breeders is that on the birthday of every single litter you've ever produced, and for some people that might be hard because they do a lot of breeding, but I don't care. Mm. Uh, on the birthday of every litter that you've produced, take the last contact that you have, whether it's an email or a phone number, and contact that owner and say, happy birthday, and how is your dog doing? Because if you don't know what you've produced over time, how can you help yourself? And so it really is something for us to do. And so that set breeding is complicated and there isn't a quick fix. There isn't a outbreed and everything will be better. There right. isn't a, you know, do this and everything will be better. It really does take some time. So breeding is an advocation, you know, it's something that we like to do, but if we're going to do it, we need to do it well. Absolutely. That was a perfect summation. And like I say, I just really, really appreciate your time. So thank okay. you. Okay. Well, thank you. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 